you know, we started with this audacious goal that we were going to make sure none of London's fire hoses went to landfill. And it was just the kind of thing you say, that's the mission we were on. And within five years, we had done it and we were able to sustainably take all of their, their waste. And I, I didn't expect to have that kind of a success so quickly. And the reason why that was really important was because then we had this almost internal permission to go out and tackle loads of other waste problems and to think, what else can we do? And, you know, there's this, I don't know what it's called a phrase, how much wood could a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck? <laughs> tongue twister, yeah. Yeah, tongue twister. And I often think, how much good can a good company do if a good company decides to be amazing? and welcome to the Women of the Future podcast, a podcast made in collaboration with the Women of the Future programme, a platform built to unlock a culture of kindness and collaboration among leaders, as well as support and celebrate the successes of women. I'm Kim Rowell and I won the media category at their awards in 2018 in recognition of my continued work as a commissioner, producer and children's author, particularly within the mental health remit. I'll be talking to my guests on this podcast about their careers, who or what gave them their first big break, their successes, failures and inspirations along the way, and how they came to be a part of the Women of the Future Network. This week, we're bringing you a very special episode of the Women of the Future podcast, highlighting the programme's Women in ESG, 50 Stars Changing the World campaign. Seeking to acknowledge and celebrate talented female trailblazers and role models, aged 35 and under, who are at the forefront of environmental, social and governance from around the world, each year the campaign will showcase 50 rising stars across different aspects of ESG who have made a lasting and positive impact on their organisations, environment and wider society. If you or someone you know is looking to celebrate a new generation of women who are a force for good, or if you want to help to create a global ESG leaders community and conversation, as well as support and strengthen the female talent pipeline in the environmental, social and governance sector, then nominations for the 2022 list are still open until Monday the 10th of May. More details can be found in the podcast show notes or by visiting esg.womenofthefuture.co.uk. Now, today's podcast guest is certainly both a trailblazer and role model in the ESG space. Cressy Westening, CBE, is a Canadian-born British entrepreneur and co-founder of the luxury recycled accessories company Elvis and Cressy. Having moved to Hong Kong to study in the 90s, Cressy went on to found an environmental packaging company in the country in 2002, which she then brought to the UK a couple of years later as she continued her sustainable and entrepreneurial journey. At a chance meeting with members of the London Fire Brigade, Cressy learnt that their discarded fire hoses were going to landfill. This led her and her partner Elvis to investigate possible uses for the material and ultimately set up their company, Elvis and Cressy, which creates handbags and other beautiful accessories. For over a decade now and continuing under their three pillars of rescue, transform, donate, none of London's fire hoses now go to landfill and over 300 tonnes of material has been reclaimed, with Elvis and Cressy donating 50% of their profits to charity. 
I grew up in Western Canada. I had an older sister and a younger brother, and I think an idyllic childhood. You know, I lived in a small Canadian city that was incredibly friendly. I lived in an unbelievable neighborhood called the Highlands, and all the families that backed onto this back alley, the kids used to just posse up and run down to the river valley, and and we had a lot of independence. We were very much free range children, I think. <laughs> I like that. And it was very safe and lovely. And we spent a lot of time camping, you know, in the Rocky Mountains, in nature. I spent a lot of time with my grandparents, particularly my my maternal grandmother, who was just an exceptional woman. And I mean, I couldn't have had a more wonderful or supportive upbringing. I couldn't have had a better education. I couldn't have had a more supportive and wonderful community. It was really a magical place and a magical time. And I know that you've said previously that the greatest influence on your sustainable thinking is your grandmother. Yes. What kind of things would she do? How would she inspire you in that capacity, particularly when you were a child? She had a, a deep love of nature, but also a utilitarian approach to it. You know, one of her bedtime stories that she would tell you was how to store cabbage through the winter. Um, <laughs> But also if you were if you were driving down the road and she saw some Saskatoon bushes, which is a kind of wild, slightly more sour blueberry, she would just pull over and she always had buckets of pails in the back and you'd be filling pails and taking those back. And she made use of everything. Nothing was wasted, not sort of time, talent, opportunity. And even when I think about how many raisins she would put in your oatmeal, it was it was kind of. <laughs> the perfect amount there was no there was nothing excessive about her and although her environmental footprint was incredibly small her social footprint was enormous you know she had an unbelievable impact on her community and all the people who had the wonderful opportunity to know her so I think essentially the person I'm constantly trying to impress is her <laughs> the person who's who I feel, how I feel deeply, like I want to be proud of what we're doing is her. So when people have, you know, their better angel on, on one of their shoulders, that's, that's her voice. And I can hear it so clearly all the time. That's so lovely. And now, obviously, I think everybody is far more aware of the demands on society of ESG, so environmental, social and governance. And it is arguably still relatively a new thing that people are trying to get their head around, particularly within finance and organisational measures that can be taken to improve on what people do in that space. And part of the reason I'm speaking to you today is because of the Women of the Futures. They're seeking to celebrate female trailblazers, really, and role models aged 35 and under from around the world who are at the forefront of ESG. And I was wondering how, through your scholastic experience as well, when you were studying, what you were like, did you lean towards these kind of sectors and areas of interest? Or were you much more of a jack of all trades or jill of all trades and just like to experience lots of different things? I... I definitely was a generalist and I, I loved all the subjects at school. I don't think there was one I didn't like. I loved all of the sciences. I loved English. I loved maths. 
I did go, I did opt for studying politics at university. And primarily that was because when I was a teenager, I thought that was the best route for change. When I was at university, I then realized that I am about change, but I'm not a political animal. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that left me to do quite a bit of soul searching. So certainly I, I went to a pretty incredible high school as well. I went to a, a place in Hong Kong called United World College, Lee Po Chan United World College. There are several of these around the world. Um, the Canadian government's a big supporter of them. Students get scholarships and are sent to one of the various schools. And the, the goal is world peace through international education, bringing young people together to study quite ideologically, basically the IB, so A-level type age. Okay. And ensure that when they then go back out into the world and do whatever they're going to do, they're going to be less likely to want to be in conflict with people they're frankly in love with because they're their oldest and and most fantastic friends. So I went to that school and certainly that gave me the I, the confidence to think, yes, I'm, I'm not just someone with goals and ideas, but I'm someone who can, who, who can put things into practice. And this is another thing that I got from my grandmother. She said to me once, if you're capable, you're responsible. And I learned at UWC that I was capable and that just made me feel responsible. And I've never I've never lost that sense of responsibility. And I think it's really interesting when you take that into the business context, because I just find it incomprehensible that someone could run a business knowing that exploitation was at the heart of the business model, mm. or that environmental degradation was at the heart of the business model, um, and not essentially pull it apart brick by brick every single day with every action that they took. I just, I don't get that. People often think it's difficult to run a social enterprise. It's difficult to run an ethical and environmental business. And I think the opposite. I think how difficult it must be to go to work every day knowing essentially that you're a psychopath <laughs> and, that the, and that the planet and its people are suffering as a direct consequence of your actions and your so-called successes. I just find that really, I find that doesn't wash. <laughs> and um, yeah, certainly not the way that I could live. But yeah, I'm definitely a generalist because... Um, or as Elvis likes to say, I'm a magpie. I love new <laughs> ideas. I love chasing. Um, let's say, you know, we're in the waste business. We rescue mm. waste, we transform it, and we then give 50% of the proceeds to charity. And I am constantly looking at new wastes. And I am constantly trying to think about how we can really deliver and design our lives around circular economy principles so that there is no waste. And possibly the best example of this recently is that at the start of the pandemic, Elvis and I really at the very start, day one, we sent everybody home and we went for a long walk and we made a list of things that we wanted to do in the course of our life together. And then we thought, why are we waiting to do some of these things? Let's do it right now. So we had thought about buying a farm. We'd been casually looking at farms while well, we just went straight ahead and bought a farm. <laughs> And the reason we wanted to do that is because we wanted to do a regenerative agriculture project. We felt like, you know, carbon offsets weren't really going to be our thing because let me give you this analogy. Nobody, nobody pays Elvis, right? Because he's super nice to me. He's an unbelievably wonderful partner. I just literally couldn't be more lucky in our relationship. But nobody subsidizes his good behavior so that they can treat their partner badly. And I think that's kind of what carbon offsetting is. I think it's a great short-term stopgap 
measure while you're improving your behavior, but it's not a get out of jail free card. And we thought the idea of a farm was wonderful because we could make it a soil first place. We could effectively be growing carbon as we improve the soil. And the first thing that we did when we got here was we started researching the best way to treat our sewage. And we found this wonderful company and this wonderful person called Jay, who set up a wetland-based sewage treatment system. And all of our sewage becomes yield. All of our waste and wastewater are captured and turned into vermicast or into fast-growing hardwoods like willow, flowering plants, biodiversity, perfectly, wonderfully clean freshwater that we can reuse on the farm, that we can bathe in. You know, for me, the, the idea of living your values is, is quite important. And that's fundamentally how I see ESG. I see that as an opportunity for businesses to align themselves with, with long-term human values. You know, what's going to make the world better for other people's grandchildren? What's going to be the best thing that we can do for each other? Let's not always talk about our rights. Let's also talk about our responsibilities. So would you say, listening to you speak, it really sounds to me that you've got a really astute mindfulness around environmental factors and, and an entrepreneurial spirit as well. Would you agree that that's the case and that this is a motivation for you? Because I'm just thinking, and like Joe Public, and I know myself potentially, that these kind of subjects aren't at the forefront of my mind. But listening to you speak, clearly they need to be and they should be. And we're all responsible for sustainability issues within our own lives. But where did that entrepreneurial spirit come from in you? Is it inherent or is it just a passion that you have, would you say? I I don't think it's inherent. I think I got, again, very lucky. My first, um, you know, I, I graduated with a, a politics degree and what do you do with that? You know, <laughs> I went to the investment banking interviews and wow, <laughs> learned five minutes into each one of those that that was not gonna be a career for me. And then I, it was actually, should I be a lawyer? And my parents certainly felt like that was probably what I was going to do. And in North America, you have to take an exam called an LSAT in order to get into mm -hmm. law school. So I, I started preparing for that exam and I was very lucky. I, I studied for that exam in the University of Calgary Law Library. And it was the first library I've ever been in where I didn't want to read any of the books. And I thought, <laughs> how am I going to get out of this? I cannot do this. Um, I duly took the test, but then I, I ran away to Hong Kong. I had a, a fantastic friend there and I sort of had $400 in my bank account and, and I was going to be in Hong Kong for a couple of weeks. And I thought, if I can get a job, I don't have to go to law school. And I again got really lucky because I went to a dinner and I sat next to a lady who was just setting up a small venture capital business. And she was just incredibly cool. And she said, you know, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, you know, not much. And she said, do you want to come to China with me and see this company that we've invested in? And I said, sure, that'd be cool. I did that. And at the end of that day, she said, what do you think of this company? What do you think it should do? And I just reamed off a list of things that I thought would make sense for that company. She said, great, well, here's an apartment. You can live here and you can, you can manage this project for me. And I, and I thought, I have literally met the craziest person on the planet. <laughs> and what do I do? And I called my dad and I, and he said, this is great. He's like, just, this is great. You know, serendipity, maybe. 
yeah, this is a lot cheaper than grad school. <laughs> You've got a job. And I worked with Amy for a couple of years. And that was where I got the entrepreneurial energy from because I was looking with them at businesses all the time and had the unique opportunity to see what made businesses work or not. You know, sometimes mm -hmm. you had a great team, but they didn't have the right funds at the right time. Sometimes they had the team and the funds, but really a bad idea. And sometimes they had a great idea, but you know, conflict in the leadership or not the right talent to take things forward. It was really an unbelievable education. But I, I think the most appealing thing was that I saw that if you ran a business and you could make enough money to keep the doors open, nobody could tell you what to do. <laughs> and I was like, this is great for me. This is really the this is really what I want to do because I I am like a magpie. I want to go and do wonderful and exciting things all the time, and I don't want to wait to build a consensus around those things. And I don't want to, you know, and I don't want to have to ask permission. Now, that's where business can go horribly wrong as well, because it's true. You know, we don't have the laws to hold businesses to account. Fiduciary duty, which is what directors are held to under the Companies Act requires us technically to do everything we can in the best interest of the shareholders. I think that's crazy. I think, yes, you can act in the interest of the shareholders, provided you're not exploiting the planet or its people, mm. you know, provided you're not being a complete and total. <laughs> a -hole. I mean, I'm trying to think of <laughs> You're talking today on the day that Elon Musk just bought Twitter because he he's a free speech absolutist and thinks that it should just be, you know, no holds barred free speech. And you know what? I love the concept of free speech. It's a right. But he seems to not want to talk about responsibility. Mm. So Donald Trump, his right. Did he have a right to incite people to violence? Yeah, but he should now be in prison as a result of that. Because what he was doing, although he was speaking his mind, went against the laws of the land. So we, we have to be very, I want to be very clear that there's an enormous amount of freedom in running a business. It's wonderful. Provided you can just have the discipline of managing an Excel sheet. You know, you've got, you've got to, money's a discipline. Money's WD. Mm. Once you get past that, it should just be candy. But I feel as a, human being with an education responsible i feel responsible for my neighbors i feel that my neighbors include people from uh, xinjiang and people from ukraine and people from the local village where we have full poverty and food poverty mm. i i don't think business leaders are i don't think that's a normal way for business leaders to think and I just, I really wish it was, you know, people call us pioneering and I, that, that was fine for me in 2005 when we started and when I first met Pinky, but I, I think that now that we've proven how wonderful this is and actually how beneficial it is to the growth of a business, I would have thought more people would be copying us. By <laughs> I don't want to be a pioneer anymore. I want, I want this to just be the way it is. And that's just not how it is. And what role models or maybe mentors have you had in this space? Because as I was saying earlier, it's still all relatively new, isn't it? And 
why is ESG so important, especially for women? And why do women need to be the ones that are leading the change? Why is that integral? And who have you lent on for support in helping you to do this? Or again, has that just been an organic process for you? I mean, it has been organic, but I definitely have mentors. I mean, Pinky is one of them. Pinky is someone that I can call and ask. I would particularly call Pinky and ask real solid human advice. You know, she she has a deep understanding of what being a kind leader can do for an organization. And that's really embedded in her thinking. Um, if I needed to find someone, I needed a connection to someone. Also, Pinky would be a wonderful person. <laughs> But I, I got really lucky when I first started Elvis and Cressy, I was asked by the, the then Gordon Brown government, by the cabinet office to become a social enterprise ambassador. And there was 30 of us who accepted this challenge. We were sent for media training. We got to bond with each other quite heavily. And then we were really sent out across the UK to talk about what the good business model was, what social enterprises are and what their contributions to society can be. And some of the other ambassadors were, you know, unbelievable. I mean, it's Tim Smith from the Eden Project and Sophie Tranchell from Divine Chocolate and Liam Black, who'd started Bulky Bobs. And I mean, Sam Conniff from Liberty. I just mm. I had, I had amazing opportunity to watch and to learn from people who were years ahead of where we were in our journey. And absolutely, that was a group of mentors. And, and then through that, you start meeting all the cool people. And for me, all the cool people are effectively, you know, social, social entrepreneurs. And, and a lot of them are our friends. And yeah, I would say I've got a really unique peer group that would certainly hold me to account if they felt I was <laughs> stepping out of line. But also if I was, you know, having an HR issue or if I was having a PR issue or if I was you know, I, I just feel like I've got almost an army of supporters. Yeah. And again, that's because people who are doing good want to help other people do good. Um, and they always make time for you, as I would always make time for other people. And across all the work you've done, is there any one thing in particular that you would say stands out for you or that you're particularly proud of? Yeah, this, this is a great question because... You know, we started with this audacious goal that we were going to make sure none of London's fire hoses went to landfill. And it was just the kind of thing you say, that's the mission we were on. And within five years, we had done it and we were able to sustainably take all of their, their waste. And I, I didn't expect to have that kind of a success so quickly. And the reason why that was really important was because then we had this almost internal permission to go out and tackle loads of other waste problems and to think what else can we do and you know there's this I don't know what's called a phrase how much wood could a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck <laughs> tongue twister yeah yeah tongue twister and I often think how much good can a good company do if a good company decides to be amazing and that's what we're trying to do every day like let's push the boundaries you know we're building right next door to me we're building a workshop 4,000 square foot workshop out of straw bales designed to run on almost no heat and um, a heat pump and and some solar mm. panels we built this sewage treatment system. We, over the last 10 days, we've been planting a vineyard at this farm with this regenerative agriculture focus. We just, we decided to do holistic plant grazing with sheep. We've had to learn how to care for sheep. We didn't know that. This way of living is a real adventure and it's really fun. And yeah, I just, I keep thinking that if people could just understand how, how joyful it is to work and live this way, 
but maybe I'd be less of a pioneer. Maybe Elvis and I would be less freakish and, and more commonplace. I find it fascinating. You obviously got a growth mindset, which I think is something that Carol Dweck was talking about in that the possibilities are almost endless and you see a glass half full or you see the opportunity there. And I know that you set out three pillars for your business as well, which I thought were perfect, really. Rescue, transform and donate because 50% of your profits do go back to charity. Yeah. And and that's that's another one that's, uh, you know, certainly when we first started the business, all of the press we got was from economic thing like the ft and it was like oh you know dubious business model over commits to donation you know stuff mm. like or we got we had some proto investors in the early years like tourists we call them and you would know that they were you know not for us because they'd say you know 50 percent. what can we do that's just like too high way too high and for me i think you know the whole part of embedding your business in its community, this waste comes, you know, fire hose comes from the fire service. It's a heroic calling. It's an unbelievably difficult job. And the firefighters charity exists to make the lives of fire service personnel, active or retired, better. They work a lot on mental health. They work a lot on physical health. They work a lot with the families of firefighters. And why shouldn't decommissioned hoses serve that community? That just makes perfect sense to me and you know what it makes economic sense too because I can tell you right now there's no way we would have grown the business the way we have without the word of mouth organic support of the fire service community of the people who love the fire brigades across this country and beyond and wanted to celebrate what Elvis and I are trying to do so yeah there's no way that my donation could ever cover the karma that's come back to us the goodwill that's come back to us these things being good multiplies being kind multiplies and it's exponential and it would be unaffordable if you tried to, <laughs> if you tried to buy it that just leads me nicely on to your involvement with the woman of the future program and how that came about you've already spoken about pinky and your fondness for her but how have you been involved with the program more generally well, I, I was nominated for an award, I think, in 2007, so really early in our journey and, uh, and won. And I remember it was Elizabeth Hurley who was presented me with this oh, award. Wow. And I remember thinking, wow, I just don't understand what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> and at that event, just through that network, we met so many other people who wanted to celebrate what we did. It generated so much press and, and good feeling around the business we were building and certainly was just one of these things that took us off in a new direction and so i've always i've gone back to do judging over the years i've gone and i've done some mentoring that was arranged by pinky and certainly when she calls i i jump because everything that pinky organizes is fun mm. and filled with wonderful energy and goodwill and kindness i have some quick fire questions just to finish if that's okay the first one, what would you describe as your greatest success? I think it's the farm. I think it's the farm. And your greatest failure? Well, that's a big list there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't know. Maybe I would have been a good lawyer. I don't know. I have no idea. I, I, I just, we fail all the time. We fail all the time. But that lawyer knowledge must have helped you as well, I'm sure, in how you progress within your own business. Yes, 
for sure. I, I mean, we make mistakes all the time. I'm not afraid to make mistakes. I'm not afraid to, to celebrate my mistakes. Often, you know, the first items that we make of anything, our early prototypes, mm. they're all around me. You know, they're hanging up on the walls and we celebrate those too, because, you know, without some of those errors, we, we never would have gotten to where we, we have with, let's say, leather. You know, the first, mm. my first iteration of our design for deconstruction circular leather was appalling, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was a good starting point. Part of the process. So, so yeah, I think, I think loads of failures, but nothing, I don't have regrets like that because I just think I, I'm so contented. You know, I, I am literally overwhelmed with, with joy all the time. You know, Elvis and I rescued a dog and this was about eight years ago. And mm. for the first week that we had him, I was sort of like spontaneously crying all the time. And, and it was, and I finally figured out it was because I was already too happy and this just pushed me over the edge and I just couldn't it was just too much emotion and so so yeah I don't I certainly I've made loads and loads and loads of mistakes but I wouldn't change anything because I'm a product of I'm a product of both success and failure for sure and a lot of luck what a wonderful thing to be too happy I love that yeah I don't I don't deserve it but it is it does represent for me a debt a feeling of debt that I will never repay and an obligation to do everything that I can to make sure everyone else has the same, gets some luck, gets some luck. The mantra of women of the future is kindness and collaboration. What does that mean to you in both your personal and professional life? Well, you know, personally, I think it means that everyone that, you know, everyone that's in your personal life, you should want them to to make the most of the skills that they've got and make the most of the opportunities that they have. And you should be there to celebrate them and to back them up. I've got an incredible friend who uh, she could tell by my WhatsApp messages that we are, we are struggling with this, getting the vineyard in, getting it established. And she sent me a message last night saying, right, I've booked this local B&B and we're just coming on Saturday and we're helping. <laughs> she knows I wouldn't have asked. Yeah. She knows that. And she's just showing up and I'm just, I'm totally overwhelmed by it, but it's, yeah, that's what personal relationships should be like. Sometimes you just need to show up for other people, whether they've asked or not, and you need to be able to identify those opportunities. And professionally, I don't see why you should be any different. I don't, I don't have a split personality. I don't have a work-life balance. I am alive and that involves a lot of work. I'm not a different person at home than I am in the business. I'm, I've just, I don't have time for, I don't have time for two personalities. I don't have time for two sets of priorities. Is there anything that scares you? Climate change and biodiversity loss and violent death. <laughs> Blimey, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what keeps me up at night, for sure. I don't stress about little things that happen during the day and mm. none of that stuff bothers me. But, you know, what are we going to do about amphibians? And what are we going to do about the red list? And what are we going to do about water quality and microplastics and the fact that we you know that 10 years ago Al Gore told us we had 10 years to solve a problem that 10 years ago we didn't do anything about you know mm. so those are the things that keep me up at night and and of course I've watched too much Nordic noir like everyone else to <laughs> not have death. <laughs> <laughs> what's left on your to-do list oh my gosh everything <laughs> you know I had a feeling it might there's be still, long. there's still 40 million tons of waste going to landfill in the UK I, I'll die and we won't have we won't have fixed that problem. So that's on my to-do list. Getting this farm right 
and sharing the data transparently is a big thing for me because the UK, it's sort of, we're at the beginning of our wine journey. Um, and why is it such a chemically intensive industry? It really doesn't have to be. So Elvis and I are here to prove that you can do everything without synthetic fertilizer and without pesticides. And that actually a natural circular local system is going to give you the best wine and the best yields. And so that's a big task. <laughs> I don't know how to grow grapes yet, let alone make wine. So, you know, that's on the to-do list. And I just think it's, it, again, it's the whole, it's the debt. I'm just, I'm just chipping away at the debt. That's, that's every day. And why is Elvis called Elvis? His name's James, isn't it? Is it a nickname, obviously? Uh, we were living together for ages before I discovered his name was James. It's, it's, <laughs> it's an entrenched nickname. He's got godchildren that call him Elvis. His parents call him James, and I, I just find that it just it's weird. Um, so he's called Elvis because on his, I think, first day at university, he showed up to field hockey trials, and, you know, there's hundreds of people there and nobody really stands out but they went to a bar afterwards and he grabbed a guitar and got up in the bar and sang blue suede shoes you know so the Brilliant. next day we called him elvis and 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 nobody remembered <laughs> 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 um, but it it suits him it actually it's totally it suits him in some ways and doesn't in others he's the he has he's a he's a person with almost no ego and never wants to be center stage. And he always wants to be in the back cheering everyone else on. So yeah, in, in those ways, it doesn't suit him at all, but he does have that sort of swagger and confidence <laughs> when he's tackling, you know, how do we learn how to trim our sheep's toenails? <laughs> oh, yeah, wow, that's you quite know, an undertaking. And you know, this is a North London city. <laughs> <laughs> he like, will find a way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really enjoyed speaking to you and I hugely appreciate you taking the time. I know that you're exceptionally busy. So yeah, just thank you. No problem. No problem. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, Kim. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Women of the Future podcast. If you enjoyed it, please hit the subscribe button. And while you're there, why not give us a rating and review? You know you want to. For more about the Women of the Future Awards, network and initiative, please visit www.womenofthefuture.co.uk. See you soon.